song you're hearing right now is called Martians. It's from the band Bad Water. There's a reason why I picked this band to play on this episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. The podcast is called Monster Kid Radio. And this is episode 485 where we're going to talk about a movie called The Flesh Eaters. You see, The Flesh Eaters, they live in water. The band's called Bad Water. You see the connection here? Now, the song is called Martians. It's from the Martians EP, which came out earlier this year. You can find them at badwaterband.bandcamp.com. Check out both of their EP releases and let them know that you heard about them here on the show. They gave us permission to play their music, so we thank them for their support. And I thank you for checking out the podcast, downloading us, and giving us a listen. I mentioned the movie that we're talking about. Well, I'm not doing it by myself. You know, I always have at least one other person come on the show to talk about these movies with me. David Annandale's coming back. The man's an author, a monster kid, a teacher. He knows his stuff, and he's a friend of mine. And I'm excited to have him back on the show to talk about this film. This was actually something that he suggested. He wanted to talk about this movie, and I thought, you know what? I've had this movie in my collection for years. I've never gotten around to watching it. Now's the time. Let's see what happens. And you'll see what happens to her. You'll hear what happens later on in this episode when I meet up with David to talk about this film. Oh, man. Although, if you've read the description to the show, you probably already know. But, yeah. Stay tuned to hear my thoughts on the movie. During the conversation, we go all over the place. But, you know what? That's what happens here on Monster Kid Radio. You get a couple of Monster Kids talking and you end up with all these sidetracks and rabbit holes. And it's, it's all over the place. But, you know what? I had fun recording it, I had fun editing it, and I hope you have fun listening to it. Now, of course, it wouldn't be an episode of Monster Kid Radio without Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. And then after Kenny's segment, we have some special announcements about things going on here at Monster Kid Radio. Before all of that, though, we have listener feedback. I've got two listener emails I'll be going over, and we'll talk about that, too. You know, why don't we just get to it right now? Get on with it, Derek. Let's go with the show. Monster Kids, this is the Count. I'm here with some friends to tell you about our favorite board and card game podcast. It's Go Forth and Game. Tom and Ryan talk about all things gaming with special emphasis on interviews with game designers and publishers. What do you think about this, my tall, gaunt friend? Go Forth Game, good! And what about you, my undead comrade? I think Go Forth and Game is the most entertaining podcast about board and card games that I've come across in 4,522 years. So, if you enjoy listening to two monster kids discuss topics like abstract games, the best family games, game schooling, various game mechanics, and of course, monster-themed games. Then you should give Go Forth and Game a try. That's GoForthAndGame.com, available on iTunes and Spotify. Welcome 
a night of total terror. Night of the living dead. The dead who live on living flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Shattering than your strangest nightmare. What number is this? What am I calling? You've reached the feedback section of the show. I've gotten a few listener emails sent to me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And before I read them, I do want to say that I'm never 100% sure which emails are for specifically the show versus privately to me. So I'm hoping the emails that I'm about to read to you now were meant for public consumption. But in the future, if you ever do email me privately and, you know, it's not for the show, just make a note of it somewhere. Anyway, this email comes from Kevin Slick. Kevin is a volunteer at Monster Bash. You see him running around in one of those orange shirts, looking like he's not sleeping the entire weekend, making sure that us Monster Kids are having a good time. He's also been on the show once when he joined me at the table at Monster Bash. But Kevin, I'd love to get you on the show proper at some point. So, Maybe sometime next month, I'll drop you an email and we can start talking scheduling. If you're interested in Skyping in, I'd love to have you on the show. Anyway, this is his email. Hi, Derek. I loved the Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman show. After listening, I watched Ghost of Frankenstein and then Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. For some time now, I've listed Ghost as my favorite of the Universals. Watching the two of them together back to back was interesting. Ghost of Frankenstein strikes me as the first real quote-unquote franchise film of the series. No longer tied to the original novel, they begin to create their own storyline. Son of Frankenstein could be in this category too, but it seems that in Ghost, they really start laying down some new rules. The monster cannot be killed, has the strength of 100 men, and so on. Both Ghost of Frankenstein and Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman are fast-paced. Ghost has villagers with torches and pitchforks in the first five minutes, and Lon is the monster, who I'll admit... I prefer to Bela as the monster, although to get the Wolfman, I can accept that, and we need someone else filling the big monster's shoes. You all mentioned the Dracula films, which made me think that Hammer's Dracula films followed this universal model. They set up some rules, as it were, no sunlight, crosses, etc., some of which were around before, but they codified them, and most importantly, set up the expectation that Dracula would be back, no matter how he was destroyed. What if Universal had made Dracula's daughter with Lugosi? The Universal Frankenstein series benefits from the idea that the monster will be back no matter what happens at the end of any movie. Great show. Love the enthusiasm for a great movie. Kevin. I've often wondered about at what point in the Universal monster cycle, the beginning of it, where does it start to veer off the original source material? And realistically, they, they all do from pretty much the beginning, right? Frankenstein is far removed from the original novel by Mary Shelley, and Dracula is actually based on the stage play, which was then based on the novel. So you've got this weird kind of literary version of the telephone game happening there. So, of course, you're not going to adhere strictly to the novel. But you're right. I think once Sun rolls around, 
son of Frankenstein that is, you start to see some changes happen in the franchise. And then obviously with Ghost of Frankenstein, it's its own thing. It's a brand new bag. I mean, the introduction of Igor, yeah, that is unique. You don't see that in the novel. But again, Ghost is where things really kind of take off. And then, of course, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Go listen to last week's episode, listeners. I love that film. It's just hands down one of the best. It really is. I would like to watch these movies all in a row again. I think the very first time I watched all of these movies, it was like that. I was able to get my hands on the VHS copies of them and just went straight through them all from beginning to end. And I wonder if it'd be possible to put together like a master chronology of all of the universal, well, maybe not all of them, but maybe like the three mainstays of that particular monster rally group, Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman. What order would you watch the films in to go from start to finish? I think start would have to be Dracula because it's the first one of the batch, and then the finishing would be probably Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I know that there are other Abbott and Costello monster movies after that, like The Invisible Man, that sort of thing, but it's not quite the same. They're different characters and all that. And you do have that invisible man hook at the end of Frankenstein. But yeah, I'd probably go from Dracula to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and then have to figure out the order in which to show them or watch them. And I don't think watching them chronologically in terms of in order of their initial release is really the default best way to go. I wonder if there's a different way to do it. So yeah, that might be a project, something worth looking into. And you're absolutely right about Hammer. Right off the bat, right out of the gate, they're doing something completely different. Sure, there's Dracula. He's a vampire. You've got Van Helsing. But from the very beginning of the first Dracula film, Harker is a completely different character and has a much smaller role in the movie than what happens in the original Bram Stoker novel. I find this whole thing fascinating. The idea of adapting a classic literature like this to create these monster films that us monster kids love so much as a storyteller, as a writer, as somebody who's always looking at public domain material and fantasizing and daydreaming about what really could be done with this or that. I just love looking at it and thinking about it critically and from a fan point of view as well. I also have an email here from Tom Garganis, who is from the Go Forth and Game podcast. We had him on the show once. Need to do it again. But in the meantime, I'm going to settle for this email. And I also apologize if I've read some of this in a previous listener segment on the show. So please bear with me. Hey, I may have sent a lot of this email before, but I can't seem to find it. So if so, skip to the new parts. Dude, we're 485 episodes into the podcast. I don't remember what's been read. Anyway, I just wanted to let you know that I enjoyed The Astronomy Club. I had not seen either of the movies, though I didn't get to finish Mission Stardust. I'll have to catch the end of that one soon. MKR Feedback. Now, I think we've probably talked about this, but just in case, or for anybody who might have forgotten, like me... Tom writes, The Invisible Woman episode with Tracy was a fun show. Tracy's a great guest. I haven't seen the movie yet and honestly wasn't too hip on it, but after this show, I'll check it out. The combo of horror and comedy from that time period is intriguing. And you're absolutely right. It is a really interesting, fun movie that I did not like at first, but I have really warmed up to. Tom continues, The Monster Kid Movie Club is the highlight of my week. I've made new friends and seen so many new fun movies because of it. And Tom, I agree. I've had the opportunity to watch some movies for the first time as I put the thing together, and I'd like to consider everybody that chats it up in the chat room during the monster movie streaming watch party screaming online things that we do. New friends. Back to Tom's email. The feedback from my fellow monster kids reminded me that 
I'm a game guy. I should be doing this. So here are a couple of games on Kickstarter that may be of interest to Monster Kids. The first is The Shivers. It's a cooperative role-playing game-like game where your team is investigating mysteries set in a spooky mansion. It has a unique changing pop-up game board and a storytelling aspect. It looks pretty cool. And then he provides a link to The Shivers on Kickstarter. Their goal has already been met. They are now taking pre-orders through the Kickstarter site. The next is The Night Cage. This is an award-winning game where players wake up in darkness with only their candle for comfort. They do not know where they are or how they got there. They have to find the way out before their light goes out. It's a cooperative tile-laying game, and it's really neat. I play-tested an early version, and it's very unique and a lot of fun. It evokes dread, fear, anxiety, but also a sense of accomplishment and lots of fun. Again, that is the game The Night Cage that is also available over on Kickstarter, and they do have a late pledge option you are interested in that one. Dom then continues saying, I'm listening to the Pigeons from Hell show now. I've not read any Robert E. Howard yet. I did watch Solomon Kane recently, and it was pretty good. That character is very interesting, and I will read more. Oh, wait. I just remembered that I read one of the Bran McMorn stories, Worms of the Earth, and really liked it. I need to read more. I'm looking forward to the rest of the show. Okay, then he finished it and continues with his email update. Great show. I'd be interested in more MKR about monsters from the small screen like this. Speaking of the show, you've alluded to some format changes. That sounds cool. The idea of topical shows will open up so much space for content. I like the Andy Milligan review idea because I've not seen any of his films that I know of. A show on horror or monster cartoons that you've mentioned? Sounds awesome. I had another couple of ideas for you. How about a Discoveries of the Year show, where you talk about the top three movie discoveries of the previous year? Shows covering an actor, director, or studio would be cool, too. I'm sure you have some amazing ideas on the way. (laughs) You're giving me a lot of credit, man. He also has comments on episode. You know what? Let's let's address that. Uh, so first of all, yes, please read some more Robert E. Howard. I will warn you: if you read any of Robert E. Howard Solomon Kane stories, they are not nearly as fantastical as the film was. I think the film is okay on its own. It's got some great music, but of course, I'm going to say that. And I think the lead actor does a fine job, but I feel like that Solomon Kane movie is to the original Solomon Kane stories as Conan the Barbarian is to the original Conan the Sumerian stories. They just really play fast and loose with the lore as established by Howard. And because I'm biased, I'm going to say Howard's a lot better. So I'd love to hear your thoughts if you read any more Howard. And as far as horror from the small screen, yes, I've got some things in mind. You know that I've been showing some television on the Monster Kid Movie Club streams. So, yeah, it's been on my mind a lot. And the Andy Milligan idea, that's something that I needed to get together with Seb Godin to do. And, yeah, it's in the works. It's on the table, on the whiteboard, on the list, in the gray matter somewhere. It'll happen. Okay. He continues with his email about episode 483 with filmmaker Rob Hampton. This was a really cool show. It was neat hearing about how Rob would make movies as a kid, something I always wanted to do when I was a kid and still do. Being in the chat with Ansel, Josh, and Chris, and now Rob really makes me want to do something with a camera, put something on film, maybe a stop motion short as I don't have a bunch of friends around anymore to draft. I need to scratch this itch somehow. But it was cool hearing you two talk about movie making. I enjoyed the movie Super 8 Days and Rob's shorts when you showed them on the movie club. That's a long email, so I'll stop here. Thanks for all you do for us, your friend, Tom. Is this where I say I used to think I'd be a filmmaker when I grew up? I think it probably is. And yeah, 
I, I did. And I miss it. You know, I'd be lying if I said anything otherwise. I do miss trying to tell stories through the medium of quote unquote film, even though it was all on video, if you want to get technical about it. I do miss that a lot. And I've considered looking at maybe some stop motion possibilities because I could do that on my own. But it's also a very time-consuming process, and as listeners know, I have a tendency of trying to take on a lot, and those who are my friends, and have been my friends for a long time, know that I always take on way too much, and I never really get everything done that I want to get done because I'm always taking on too many projects. However, there are some things in the works to try to help keep me on track, and you know, 2021 might see some cool stuff. Just saying. Tom, thank you for writing in. Thanks for telling us about the Kickstarter games. I'll make sure there are links in the show notes to everything that he just mentioned here. Listeners, if you want to email the show, you can always email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can even call and leave us a voicemail, and I'll play it here on the show and address it and respond to it. All you got to do is call us at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MK. Are. Now, I did receive some comments on Facebook, on Twitter, and on YouTube about some of the other things that have come up in the recent episodes. At last count, I was contacted by at least four people who have commented on last week's episode, kind of lamenting that Ricardo and I didn't really get too much more into Bela Lugosi's missing dialogue as the monster from Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. I feel like we touched on it a little bit, but because nobody's actually ever heard the dialogue, I didn't want to get too in-depth with it because, come on, we can only talk about lost films and missing film footage for so long before we just get way too heartbroken because it's just not there for us to enjoy. But yeah, Bela Lugosi did have some dialogue in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman that would have even explained why he walks around with his arms sticking out in that stereotypical Frankenstein fashion that really it makes sense once you realize that it's because the character was blind and he's feeling his way around. But because we didn't get that actual dialogue from the film that got kind of attached to the stereotype of the Frankenstein monster. And to this day, it's still part of it sometimes when you think about it and yeah, it is what it is again. Kevin, Tom, thanks for writing into the show. And listeners, if you have anything that you want to comment on from the previous 484 episodes or just want to talk monster movies or maybe even let us know about any monster movie events happening in your neck of the woods, well, get a hold of us and let us know. I am Nicholas Merweather, executive producer of a new motion picture I dare you to see. This equipment operated for 165 days, creating a new kind of realism. A suspense never equaled. This contains 70,000 feet of film, reduced to the most terrifying 90 minutes ever made. The sadist is coming to this theater, to this screen. The sadist. A human volcano of unpredictable terror, rejected by society, twisted with mental anguish, tortured by complexes. Man or monster, sane or insane, but driven to shock and kill. A page of life, strange and terrifying, unfolds on the screen with such startling realism. Come on, maybe the gun's empty. Come on, mister, I'm giving you a chance such powerful suspense, you will forget it is on film 
and see him cold stark. Inflicting pain, seizing revenge. Eat the dirt, taste it. Giving only of his own driving passion to torment and twist the innocent, subject them to animal misery and kill. from the front pages flash to the screen with all the shock of a gun blast comes the most suspenseful terror-stricken motion picture in years Sadist is coming to bring you the most terrifying 90 minutes ever seen to this screen. The Sadist. From the creators of 1 million BC. When dinosaurs ruled the earth. It is the beginning. The darkest age of all. The wings of a monstrous bird darken the sky. A great beast lumbers forth in search of prey. A beautiful virgin is marked for death. It is the beginning. A time of terror, pagan worship, human sacrifice. From across the shadowy abyss of time, Warner Brothers brings you... When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth. Rated G General Audiences. This is Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. This is Jack Curtis, director of the film The Flesh Eaters. If you can't stand the sight of flesh being stripped from a human body, please leave the room. There will be a 10 second countdown. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, Four, three, two. These things want flesh, any kind of flesh. And once they sense it, they'll eat their way through anything that comes between them and their meat. No one can escape the flesh eaters.
Listeners, it's been over a year since I've had him on the show, but he is a mainstay at the Monster Kid Movie Club screenings that we do on Saturday. He shows up in the first half of it. I'm talking about David Annandale here. He's a writer. He's a teacher. He's a monster kid. He's my friend. Welcome back to the show, sir. Thanks for having me back. It's such a pleasure. It has been way too long since we've had you on, but we've been in touch and we've been chatting and we finally came up with a movie to talk about and I cannot wait to get into it. But before we do that, I want to catch up with you. How are things going with you, man? They're going really well, uh, keeping uh, really busy, uh, still getting the books out as fast as I can and uh, with lots of exciting uh, projects going and irons in the fire. And enjoying every Saturday with the uh, Monster Kid Movie Club. Uh, I mean, it's been it's been a while since we've talked formally like this, but it's really nice to catch up with you and everyone else on the Saturdays. Now, you and I did record a video thing that will be we happening did. in the near future. I'm working on some audio issues with that because I'm a podcaster and I want that to sound perfect. Um, <laughs> but that'll be coming up here soon. Too. So listeners, stay tuned for that. With the writing, you still working with the Black Library primarily? Working with them and with uh, Aconite. So got um, one project that I, well, should be announced fairly soon, but I don't think I can announce it yet. That's coming out from Black Library. I'm in the middle of writing a uh, Age of Sigmar fantasy novel for them as we speak. And uh, my most recent, I guess my most recent mass market novels with them are the horror novel, The House of Night and Chain. And the fantasy novel, The Dominion of Bones, with the vampire queen Neferata. And with Aconite, you can look forward to my Legend of the Five Rings novel, Curse of Honor, which will be out in October. And also, as we speak, I am going through the edits for my Doctor Doom novel, The Harrowing of Doom. And that's supposed to be coming out in December. Oh, so, man. That's... Yeah, very excited about it all. You told me about Doctor Doom when we chatted for our video project and wow i mm, i'm excited about that but these the, the titles just are awesome especially the house of night and chain that just the title sounds awesome <laughs> thank you i'm that was my first novel for their new warhammer horror line and was a, a chance to for the first time in a while get back to writing a full-on horror novel and i love haunted house novels my first horror novel was a haunted house novel gethsemane hall and so I was able to take another crack at the genre with The House of Night and Shane. And I, I have to say, I'm, it's a book that I'm, I'm really quite proud of. It was some of the, the, one of the greatest pleasures I've had in writing uh, for some time. And the cover they did for it. Oh, oh it looks just, great. Yeah, yeah. It's a oh, man, it looks, oh, it looks really good. Well, we'll make sure there's links in the show notes, of course, through our Amazon affiliate links and everything like that. And man, that Dr. Doom novel, I can't wait for that. That's going to be, I know we don't do comic books very much here, but that's going to be awesome. I, I can't wait myself. Let me put it that way. <laughs> right on. Well, we've got some movies. We've got a movie to talk about and we're going to get to it. But I do want to say flat out right off the bat. I had never seen this before last night. Now, it's one of those ones that I've had in my collection for a very long time. But you know how it is. I have books, oh, yeah. comics, uh, movies, Blu-rays, DVDs. I have my DVR filled almost to the top, 100% of stuff that I just haven't gotten around to watching or reading or consuming yet. And this is one that's been sitting there. And I'm not sure why I never really got around to it. The poster, the artwork, the trailer, I mean, it all makes me feel like something I should have watched a long time ago. It's just, you know, I just sat on it and then we talked about it. Like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to watch. Let's watch it. I watched it last night uh, with my cat Smoke. 
I don't think he was as impressed as I was, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, we're talking about the flesh eaters. It's from 19. I found a couple of different conflicting sources, 64 or 65. Do you know? I think, well, they started shooting it in 62. I noticed the copyright date on the print is 63, but I think it was 64 that it actually got a, at least some kind of release. It had a pretty troubled production. Like, you know, they had a hurricane wipe out their set. So 25 uh, days of shoot turned into six weeks, and their distributor collapsed during the initial release. So that could probably explain some of the weird dates. And we also have some footage that was added to the film after its release. So yeah, it's uh, it can get a little bit tricky there. Some footage that was added and then for some other re-releases it was removed, right? Yeah, the the Nazi experimentation footage which was removed for the Dark Sky DVD release. Uh, it is present along with the color tinting, the red tinting at the climax on the Sinister Cinema edition. But I, I have to say uh, as we're watching the the the, the two of them that I prefer the original, what is apparently the the original Jack Curtis cut without that footage, because you can really see the difference in the two films, as it were, the stuff that was shot later, not by Curtis. Mm -hmm. uh, it's much flatter, much less interesting. It, it slows the uh, the movie down just as we're hitting the climax. So the version that I saw was the Dark Sky release. I have not seen uh, the version with the Nazi experimentation footage. I was going to ask you if it's worth tracking down. It sounds like it might be interesting to see, but not really essential. Well, the, the, you can see it as one of the extras on the Dark Sky DVD. See, and I didn't explore they, the extras yet. Yeah, so it's it shows up when uh, Peter Bartel, our villain, is uh, explaining the origin of the Flesh Eaters. Mm. And it just extends that scene. Uh, and so we, we flash back to uh, prisoners being thrown into water and being devoured by the Flesh Eaters, except that this lab uh, is very clearly a hotel swimming pool with potted plants in the background and... Uh, uh, the, the, the Nazi flag looks like it might as well be a beach towel hanging on a wall. So it's, um, <laughs> it's interesting, but the film, I don't think suffers for its absence, especially since it wasn't there in the first place. Gotcha. I was trying to imagine where it would have fit and how it would have worked. And it just feels like that section, it would have just drug everything to a halt because that section, it's already kind of a, a talky talky info dump section anyway. It's interesting. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, it's when the villain's telling his plan and you, you want to break that up even more. And I think it loses one of the the, the many things that I, I find fascinating about the film is its, its self-awareness and the little winks it makes to the audience, little kind of metafilmic uh, notes. And so, yeah, you've got the big info dump from the villain there who, in fact, at one point interrupts himself and then goes, now, where was I? Yeah. Right. So it, it's like the, the film is saying, yeah. Here's the villain's monologue, and even he knows it. And there's that sort of thing that, that runs throughout the film. But uh, I may be getting ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> when I first encountered this movie many, many moons ago, a long time ago, I assumed it was going to be a zombie flick. And I think it's because I was... Uh -huh. I was neck deep in zombie cinema back in the day. That's how I started my podcasting quote unquote career was doing zombie stuff. So of course the flesh heaters made me think, Hey, that's, that's zombie stuff. And then it just, yeah, it's, it's nothing like that at all. <laughs> no. And yet, right. Since you say that, right. I mean, obviously it predates any kind of flesh eating mm -hmm. zombies, mm -hmm. but because of its title, apparently George Romero's night of the living dead was originally going to be night of the flesh Eaters, and changed the title to avoid confusion. 
see and that's where i was going with this this is why i think you and i should podcast more because we're like i'm setting you up and then you're <laughs> like <laughs> that's exactly where i was going with that yeah i had read that too that the distributor for night of living dead didn't want to go with that flesh eater title because of the confusion it could potentially cause the movies are so diametrically <laughs> so different yeah, from each other more different. but yeah you know i get it well and you know and this was also years earlier so the, the question does arise like how likely is that Right. That there would have been any possible confusion. After all, we have we're, we're talking about an industry where William Castle's House on Haunted Hill comes out the same year as Shirley Jackson's novel, The Haunting of Hill House. So, yeah, good point. The other thing that I find interesting, too, about this film's tenuous connection or lack thereof to Romero's Night of the Living Dead is that this movie is bloody. This movie is gory, and I know a lot of people credit Romero for bringing that kind of that edge to horror. There was a paradigm shift in, in independent horror at that point with his film, but this film really—I mean, it predates *Sign of yeah. Living Dead*, and it's got gore, it's got blood, it's got people being shot, <laughs> it's being—it's yeah. got people self-administering those shots to each other. It's crazy to think that this movie came out before *Night of the Living Dead*. When you look at those elements, and again, my my. I'm blown away by it. Arnold Drake has said about it that, I'm quoting him here, uh, we saw what was happening, how the genre was changing, and we wanted to be in on the change. We understood that it was important to get more characterization into so that the audience wasn't simply pulled from one horror shot to another, one special effect after another. But, but they were also trying to update things. And so this film, on the one hand, it looks back. Right. You can see a drawing on the horror movies of the 50s and before with uh, the casting of uh, uh, Martin Koslick. But it also anticipates what's going to come. And I forget who it was who said this, that if Blood Feast was the first gore film, The Flesh Eaters is the first good one. And oh. there's something to that. Of course, the, the, the question arises, is Blood Feast really the first gore film? Because we have the absolutely sublime eyes without a face that comes out a couple of years before that as well. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if uh, the hurricane hadn't wiped out that set, the Flesh Eaters probably would have beaten uh, Blood Feast to the theaters. But the, you can see the differences between the two films, too, in that Blood Feast really does go, go from one horror shot to another. The gore is over the top, but it doesn't really mean anything. Whereas we get the gore in The Flesh Eaters, but the camera doesn't really linger very long on the gore effects. And what's, I think, absolutely crucial is that the gore here matters. We care about the characters that these things are happening to. The violence is really integral to the story and the characterization and the overall impact of the movie. Yeah, even the very beginning of the film where we have the two characters that really aren't connected to anything else going on, just the, the couple out on the boat and they're playing yeah. back and forth. He's splashing a little bit of beer on her to get her attention. Her top comes off. We don't see anything there. Um, no, we're not going that far with this kind of film, but uh, when they get in the water and what happens to them happens to them. I still cared about them as a couple. There was something, just the way they were drawn and portrayed on screen. I don't know if it was an acting thing, a directing thing, uh, a writing thing, or just a combination of all three. This happy accident just led to us. I really cared about these two and I thought they were going to be part of the story. And then the water turns red. So no, not quite. (laughs) Well, and think of, too, the the supply boat scene, right? Oh, yeah. And so this guy who comes to that, you know, this brief moment of rescue. Now, here's a character who's got, what, a minute 
of screen time. If that, yeah. And and yet in the, his introduction, we learn he's married. He's just had his anniversary. He's already had one near brush with death and he has principles. He's mad at this other fisherman who hasn't gone to check on these poor people. Mm-hmm. Right. So in, in the space of just a few seconds, we have a character that we know something about and have reason to care about him. And to come back to the opening scene that you're talking about, the, the film's cleverness kicks in right away because uh, while the uh, we have our young couple there, what are we hearing on the radio? It's a, a a song by a band that's calling itself the Teen Killers. Yeah, and th- this is a song written by the screenwriter Arnold Drake. I imagine we'll be talking more about him. But if you listen to the lyrics, they're singing about this drink that that spilled down the crack of his back, right? Just as the male character is doing precisely those things with his drink to his uh, partner. Yep. So the the song is mirroring the action on the screen. It's really well done. Uh, just everything about this movie, nothing is wasted. I really appreciate that everything that we see contributes in some way to the story. We're talking about that supply boat guy. The person, mm-hmm. his, his, I guess his employer, his supervisor, his boss. No, he's not a very pleasant person, but there's enough of an interaction there for us to know exactly what kind of person he is. Yes. And I, I appreciated that too. There's a real economy of storytelling on screen. I didn't notice that the movie runs almost an hour and a half, doesn't it? Yeah. It moves, right? I really don't find there's any moments that are flat because mm-hmm. there's always something happening. My argument with this film is that it is the perfect drive-in film, in my humble yet correct opinion. And there's all <laughs> kinds of reasons for this. Okay. One of them, bouncing off some of what you just said, is the way that it delivers to the audience. Now, here's a movie whose poster is kind of vague, right? Mm-hmm. You you can't really tell from the poster what this is all about. And you've got that wonderful tagline, the only ones among you who will not be sterilized with fear are the ones who are already dead. So, okay, well, that's an interesting threat. But, okay, well, what exactly are the flesh eaters? You can't tell from the poster. Now, let's then compare this to another terrific drive-in movie, Roger Corman's Not of This Earth, and its poster. All right, now, I love Not of This Earth. I, I've, I've taught both this and the flesh eaters in a, in a drive-in movie course. It's a, it's a great film. But if we look at the poster, you've got that awesome tentacle jellyfish monster thing clutching at the, the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. in the poster and the actual monster that we get in the film is basically one of the blues brothers so it's not quite what the poster promised terrific <laughs> though the movie is now the flesh sheeters poster doesn't promise you a particular kind of monster so you go in and then you get the flesh sheeters which you know the little burns on the zones of celluloid but very effective and mm-hmm establishes, okay, the water's really dangerous. And so, all right, now, okay, these are our monsters. Yeah, I'm good with this. So the movie is, is delivering what it promised. But then, well, I think what makes it the perfect drive-in movie is that it delivers more than it promised. Because on top of the gore that we're talking about, then at the climax, it's like, oh, here's a monster. You weren't expecting this, were you? Okay, you like this one? Now here's an even bigger monster, right? And we're going full-on kaiju, by the end, we're getting giant monsters in a movie that never told you you were going to get giant monsters. It was a pleasant surprise. I was shocked. I was shocked. <laughs> yeah. Well, so was I. <laughs> I was watching and I'm thinking, okay, this is an interesting movie. And okay, I'm really liking this. And this characters are, okay, I get it. And yeah, there's gore, but it makes sense. What I, it's a creature feature all of a sudden. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I remember the first time I saw it, it was like, okay, what? 
what? What? <laughs> As it kept going along. I actually checked to make sure that my disc didn't skip ahead or something. Cause all of a sudden it's like, what, what, what just, I don't get, but you know what? It worked. And, and it's just this, it's this beautiful thing. I really enjoyed this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, and here's the other thing that I think is just, is, is so amazing about this movie is that you can construct a Venn diagram mm-hmm. where this movie is the intersection of circles that include, but are not limited to, the Marvel and DC universes, classic horror and gore cinema, Mm -hmm. high-end 70s erotica, and Citizen Kane. I was with you into the Citizen Kane part. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, okay, I see what you're saying. I see the connection. Citizen Kane, okay. You notice how many gorgeous compositions there are in this film, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And there's some really, really striking deep focus photography where you have uh, you know, our, our hero, Grant Murdoch, in an extreme close-up. And then in the distance, we have the two, two of the uh, the other characters. We've got Jan and uh, Jan Letterman and Peter Bartel uh, who are asking what's going on, right? We've got this vast distance between them, but they're all in focus. And there's another shot with uh, a shoe and, and, and characters. So there's some really, really striking deep focus photography again. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the movie that cornered the action on deep focus photography? Citizen Kane. Gotcha. Okay. And when our beatnik Omar shows up, what's the name of his raft? Oh, yeah. I thought that was interesting. I was going to ask if there was any significance to that. It's the Rosebud. Yeah. So I think that's the nod to some of the visual inspiration in the film. I mean. Hey, I'm on board. I'm on board. I'm not arguing. (laughs) I'm tempted to draw a connection to Cat on a Hot Tin Roof also. Uh, here I, I feel like I'm, I'm reaching a little bit, but when uh, Grant Murdoch is giving a sad backstory and he ends with he saying, I really love that little tramp, he sounded so much in the intonation that he gives like the way Big Daddy says that in the film version of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Though he's talking about his father. And, you know, the Laura Winters character, our, our, our drunken, struggling actor, she could almost come out of a Williams play. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a stretch, but uh, I'm just going to throw that out there. I actually got that with her, and I was wondering if if maybe that was intentionally modeled after something like that, because, well, and again, it's the direction, the writing, where the performers brought, but she felt real. I, I bought that she was an actress, that she was somebody who struggled with the alcohol, didn't really care. She felt like a real actress to me, like I mean, like a real person as opposed to a character. Does that make sense? It does. They, and I think all of them do. And she, I, I find particularly interesting because she's kind of the heart of the metafilmic conceits in the film because she's the one who seems to be most aware of the, that they're in a movie, right? Mm-hmm. And, and our, the characters that we have, they're types, they're nuanced types, right? but she even identifies the types they are. It says, you know, now, now we're all together. Dr. Cyclops, Buster Beatnik, Gunga Din. <laughs> and yeah. uh, says, what's a poor lady lush to do in a place like this? Early in the film, when they're in the plane before it has the uh, the trouble and they land on this island of, of the flesh eaters surround, she's muttering in her sleep, having some kind of love scene dream. <laughs> and, it, and then she turns over and says, cut. And at the moment she says, cut, the film cuts. And she keeps doing this through the film as if she's commenting on the tropes that are being deployed by the movie. Yeah. 
I really liked her. She was one of my favorite characters to watch on screen. Probably my least favorite person to spend time with, uh, if I had to spend time with anybody here. <laughs> but as yeah. as a, a character, uh, in terms of just enjoy watching on screen, I really enjoyed watching her. Rita Morley was the actress. Is that right? Am I looking at? That's yeah. And yeah, she was yeah. just phenomenal in this. Uh, and, and the way she changes from lush completely out of her head to okay she's dry and sober now but she doesn't care she really prefers the she drinks she doesn't just have a little bit she guzzles it down it's like that's that's phenomenal and she's very open about that too i mean you you pretty much quoted her there oh and uh when she she makes that pronouncement to the uh the other characters you know i I don't drink politely i mean i drink yeah there's nothing about this movie that's wasted it really isn't any fat here to trim um it's one that i wish that i had watched a long time ago and i want to talk a little bit more about the story and get a little bit more specific but Mm -hmm. i don't want to go too much further before we do what we always do the classic five bring it on all right here we go so for the classic five for people who don't know any brand new listeners anything like that the Classic Five is a game that we play here on the show. I've got a literal deck of cards. I'm going to draw five of them, and each one of these has a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question? There are no wrong answers. It's just a way for a couple of monster kids to either start a conversation or keep a conversation going. David, are you ready to play? I am always ready for the Classic Five. Right on. All right. So card number one. Not counting this movie, what was the most recent monster movie you've watched? Not counting this one, the most, well, that would be uh, The Creature Walks Among Us. Hey, and that's we were just talking fault. about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did try to catch some of that conversation at the very beginning when we were talking earlier, but you said you'd had it in your collection for how long before you watched it? 25 years. It was the film that I couldn't bring myself to watch because of what happens to the creature. And the the, the pictures I saw of the, uh, how does Dennis Gifford call it, uh, a sackcloth hulk. And I just, oh, no, 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 my beautiful creature. I mean, I love the creature from the Black Lagoon so much. And it was just this mental block. I cannot watch this film. But uh, on the Monster Kid Movie Club, you pulled the Classic Five card out, asked Revenge of the Creature or Creature Walks Among Us, and you pointed out that there's some interesting stuff that happens in the Creature Walks Among Us. So it's like, okay, yeah, you know what? This is shameful this is embarrassing that i haven't seen this movie what what is my problem here so i said okay you know confront this sit down watch it and it was so interesting and i liked it so much more than i expected to and i would say now that it's nowhere near as good as the original film but i think it's the most interesting of the two sequels. There we go. My job here is done. I got somebody to watch Creature Walk Among Us. We're good. I can stop the podcast now. No, no, no. Well done, sir. <laughs> All right. Card number two. Hammer Horror or Hammer Sci-Fi? Hammer Horror. Yeah, because there's just so many there, though. Ah. Yeah, so even as I say this, though, because if you ask me what's my absolute favorite Hammer film, mm-hmm. I might have to go with Quatermass in the Pit. So it, it's a preponderance. But, of co- but though that is a film which is certainly a horror film as well. I first experienced that as a kid, seeing it on the big screen under the Five Million Years to Earth title and basically curled in fetal position for most of the film. Absolutely terrified. So I can still stick with my Hammer horror there, but I still have to give a little bit of a caveat because the very first Hammer film that I saw and that has a very, very, very dear place in my heart is When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth which my mom took me to see, I must have been six or seven years old, I guess, uh, which was the film where, which introduced me to the concept of a metaphor, because in the opening scene, when we have these guys in the wearing dinosaur 
the headdresses, I was worried that that's what the movie title meant, that this was the dinosaurs I was going to get. And then the real dinosaurs showed up and I was ecstatic beyond words. And I guess we qualify that as kind of hammer sci-fi with its, you know, it's J.G. Ballard originating idea or, or treatment. But you know what? It, you know, I think of the John Burke novelizations of uh, Dracula, Prince of Darkness and the curse and revenge of Frankenstein and the Gorgon and the reptile and the plague of the zombies that I read over and over and over as a kid and wanted to see so badly and then was delighted just in, in Seventh Heaven when I finally saw those films. Horror is where I'm going to go for my first love with Hammer. That's a long-winded answer. That's kind of how I started was with Hammer Horror. I, I mainlined the Frankenstein and Dracula films just over the course of two or three nights, watched them all, and, uh, mm. I mean, fell in love. Now, I, I love me some Quatermass, don't get me wrong. And, of course, you know, we can't not talk about the, the most important sci-fi film they ever did, which was Moon Zero 2. Okay, I'm kidding. I can't keep well. that going. Um, <laughs> although I am going to be talking about that movie here in the near future with Alistair Hughes, so stay tuned for that. I um, will. <laughs> all right, card number three. What's your favorite John Carradine monster movie? My favorite John Carradine monster movie? I'm going to go, I think, with Revenge of the Zombies. Oh, okay. But you know what? That's because that's the most recent John Carradine monster movie I've seen. Uh, oh, no, no. I saw Face of Marble after that. So, yeah, I just I like that one because of the uh, Vita and Borg zombie. Okay. And having a talking zombie in at that point particular point in time i mean i I guess in some ways the zombie mythologies in in films are still solidifying but i can't really think of anything else where you have a zombie who is the primary opponent to the villain and her amazing sepulchral voice and he's just so sleazy uh, and and horrible in that film that you just can't wait for her to bring him down and it's so satisfying when she does but you know what? If you ask me this question next week, I might very well have a different answer. That's how this goes, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, hell, I'll probably think of a different answer the moment that we hang up. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's how it works. Uh, it's because we love so many of these movies, man. They're just so... Exactly. Uh, we just... Nothing but love for them. All right. Next card. What's your yeah, favorite... What's your favorite child? Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I know better than to ask that of people. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next card. What's your favorite man in ape or man in gorilla suit movie? Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, man in a suit. Yeah. So the, the, thank, thank you for uh, removing stop motion from the equation there. Oh, that, that'd be an impossible one to ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or answer, it, it I guess. Be. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I think I would go with, uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue. Okay. Uh, it's got, I mean, the, the beautiful expressionism, this is the, the, the Lugosi film here, granting that the, the ape has a relatively small role. So if pushed to make the ape a little more central, I might go for the 1939 gorilla. Uh, it's sort of one of those dumb comedies that, just makes me laugh. So, for an actual man in a suit, I, I might lean towards the gorilla. The if we wanted a, just a flat out, oh, you know what? No, see, this is what I mean. This is what I mean. Where you start to to change your mind, even uh, here, I'm, I'm coming up with a different answer as we speak. I think I might go with the monster maker. Oh, okay. Where we get the the gorilla suit more, and he's because there, it's almost like why do we even have a gorilla in this movie? Well, because, and you have. The gorilla encountering the heroic dog, 
And it's also a really dark, nasty film for the period. And I think it's a really, really interesting film. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I've managed to uh, avoid answering your question there. All three of those movies are great. And had to get a shout out, shout out to The Monster Maker. Yeah, now The Monster Maker's good. I think of the three that you've mentioned, that's the one that I've seen most recently. Might have even shown it on a Monster Kid movie club, actually, now that I think about it. But, yeah, that one, Ray Corrigan in the, in the gorilla suit. I mean, you can't go wrong with Ray Corrigan. Of course, you can't go wrong with Charlie Gamora either in yep. Murders of the Rue yep. Morgue. So, but Murders of the Rue Morgue does do that weird real animal close up yeah which has always taken me a little out of it yeah and thinking about that was also making me think of the monster walks which i i have a soft spot for but that one just stays with a real chimp all the way through so uh what would your favorite uh gorilla movie be well i was gonna go murders in the room morgue but now i'm kind of talking myself into the monster maker too (laughs) (laughs) oh it's so agonizing it's so tough. You know, that really is a lost art, though. I, I, yeah, well, we just don't get enough gorillas in movies anymore. Yeah, that's something we need to see brought back. Says, <laughs> says like, two of the five guys out there to actually go pay to see it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, final card. Nick Agar or John at... Well, I just screwed that up. Nick Adams or John Agar? Please don't tell anybody I just screwed that up. <laughs> Nick Agar, who's that? Well, so, I was going... Well, you had me panicking for a moment. It's like, oh, God, I don't know who Nick Agar is. Is he his his cousin, his brother? <laughs> I'm just going to embarrass myself here. John Agar, and I say this as a, a massive, massive kaiju fan, but just for the, the sheer number of films that one of those actors was in that I, that I get so much enjoyment out of, I'm going to have to go with John Agar. As we speak, I'm going, okay, I need to pull the brain from Planet Arrows off the, off the shelf and sit down and watch that again. So, yeah. 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 Team Agar all the way. I love Nick Adams. I really do. But come on, it's John Agar. Come on. As the great poets, the dead Elvi have always told us, John Agar rules. <laughs> he does. He does. He does. survived let's get back to the flesh eaters and see if we continue to survive here this it's an open question there you go with the exception of like the opening sequence and a few other bits here and there for the most part the story is pretty self-contained to this island it Mm -hmm. works really well in that regard and i'm going to keep making some comparisons to night of the living dead here it's it's these characters that are surrounded by something that could kill them yes but really one of the most dangerous things here is one of the people they're with. And and that's one of the things that I always loved about zombie movies is that it wasn't necessarily the zombies are going to get you. It's that the people are going to turn on each other. And yeah. the real threat's always from within. It's always another one of your survivors that's really going to cause a problem. And I really appreciated that here, too. As I'm watching this, I keep thinking to myself, why didn't this one become the movie that kind of changed things and was the paradigm shift in horror. Why is Night of the Living Dead, which I love, not taking anything away from it, but why is Night of the Living Dead the one that everybody kind of looks at as, as the one that kind of changed things? And why didn't this one? Because this one came out beforehand and it's got so many of the same things, but it does it in such a, a more transitionary way because you've got the creature feature elements too. And I'm not sure why that is, but I find it fascinating. Well, I think the distribution might have had something to do with that, but also... I mean, Night of the Living Dead, it certainly goes much further with the gore. And it's got that grounding in the here and now 
right? So, and, and 1968 is such a crucial year in horror, right? I mean, we have Night of the Living Dead and Rosemary's Baby the same year. And like the, the Flesh Eaters is kind of looking towards what's right. going to come down the pike. They, you can look at a few other movies from the 60s, at least in, in terms of, of American films, which are seem, feel a little bit ahead of their time, right? They're landing there. They're not creating the time. It's like they've come in from slightly from the future or they're, they're seeing what's going to come. So the Flesh Eaters would be one. The Sadist would be uh, another, right, which kind of feels like proto-Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, and the like, but it's just 10 years early. And so maybe the Flesh Eaters is a little bit early and and without wanting to take anything away from the flesh eaters there's also the extraordinary power of romero's film and taking also a kind of character that audiences know really well the flesh eaters has to introduce us to the its threat and teach us what it is you go to night of the living dead first i think it's kim newman who pointed out you go there with a the feeling that you've already seen probably 10 movies with that title and it, it's almost generic and more power to it. And then you get zombies. Yeah, I know what zombies are. Holy crap, I didn't know zombies do that. Yeah. <laughs> right? I, mean, I can't think of any other film that you can point to where the entire conception of what a monster was got changed by one movie. Right? Okay. No flesh-eating zombies before Romero, pretty much nothing but afterwards. That's true. Yeah. Right? That's true. And the way that it resonated with the events, the social upheavals of the time, right? It was just, it was the right movie at the right time. So I think those would just be some of the reasons why it had that impact when the Flesh Eaters didn't. So the Flesh Eaters, is, it's got a bit more of that nostalgic feel, right? You've got um, Martin Kozlik in it. So it's like, well, you know, he's up. To, he's not up to uh, any good. Uh, <laughs> he's still, you know, if he shows up in a movie, he's got to be bad, right? The monster stuff has got that kind of sort of low-budget 50s monster feel that perhaps lets the audience off the hook a little bit in the way The Night of the Living Dead never does. Right, you never get the moment in Night of the Living Dead where you can go, "Oh yeah, that looks fake," or "That's kind of cheesy." It's it's just relentless. The, the Flesh Eaters is a more, perhaps a more fun movie in a way that it's a little more interested in having a good time or the audience having a good time. If if any of this makes any sense, no, it really does. And I think part of me already knew. You know, yeah, of course, Night of the Living Dead is going to be the one yeah. because it did so many other things. But I think just kind of talking about it further solidifies for me anyway that there's more going on in Night of the Living Dead than just, hey, look, it's a monster movie. Whereas with Flesh Eaters, you do have a lot of, hey, look, it's a monster movie. And that's it. And that's okay. And that's what we came to it for. Yeah. And I think there's more as well. But it, I think back to your idea of, of the self-contained aspect. Mm-hmm. right? And I think you're, you're absolutely right. They're both siege movies. The characters cut off and surrounded by the the bad thing, but they are really cut off in the flesh eaters. Whereas the isolation is is of a very different order in Night of the Living Dead. They're cut off, but they increasingly find out that well, yeah, everybody is. This is a problem that's going everywhere, and you've got the television that they're watching, so we're getting the context. Whereas if not for the gore and the much more frank sexuality in uh, the flesh eaters it could almost have been made in 1958 yeah rather than rather than well starting in 1962 i mean i suppose if we look at sort of siege isolation uh horror films we might be going back to things like the thing mm-hmm. and there too with with the thing you're kind of you're very conscious of its socio-political context in that film 
And I don't want to say that we aren't in in the Flesh Eaters. Perhaps to put it another way is that a lot of the Flesh Eaters commentary is about the genre and the sort of turning things on on its head and hitting you in unexpected ways. I mean, for instance, Martin Kozlek's character, right? He shows up, he's got the accent, basically a figure from from the birth of sound movies. If someone shows up with an accent like that, they're the villain or or if it's an old Dark House movie and, and it's Lugosi, maybe a red herring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. But if he's a scientist, oh no, no, he's bad, right? And Martin Kozlek like, is bad, and that we have that long, long pattern in American uh, horror films of the villain being the other, right, the one who doesn't sound American. And the flesh eater certainly falls into that pattern with our hero. Well, as uh, our villain actually calls him, Mister All American with wings. Right. So we're still a few <laughs> years out. Let's say Peter Bogdanovich's targets, where the villain is Mister All American with wings. Mm-hmm. So we don't get that here. But what we do find out in the backstory is that uh, Peter Bartel is not the evil foreign scientist. He is American, too. Right. You underestimate my patriotism, he says to Grant Murdoch when it comes to selling the, the flesh eaters. So there's a little bit of a tweak happening there. Like I said, the, the, the way that the film keeps playing with conventions. And I think this is in keeping with the work of its uh, screenwriter, Arnold Drake, who just after writing this film would give us the Doom Patrol and was also uh, the co-creator of things like Dead Man and the Guardians of the Galaxy. So that very offbeat imagination and these characters, especially with the Doom Patrol, that are kind of commentaries on the superhero genre that they are also part of. And that's another aspect that I wish I had known before I had gotten into this film. If I had known that Arnold Drake was the screenwriter on this, I think I would have watched it almost as soon as I added it to my collection. <laughs> but I, I had no idea. I knew nothing about it other than, oh, Flesh Heaters. That sounds like, you know, I would have been all over it like right away. And Dead Man, I love Dead Man. Dead Man's great. He's one of my favorite characters that doesn't get enough attention, I feel like, in, in uh, yeah. DC Comics. So if I had known that, and in Having known that now, having watched it and realizing, hey, wait a minute, you can really see the comic book structure in a lot of this. It feels very EC Comics to me. It really does. And I don't know if he did a lot with EC Comics or that that era of comic books, but it feels very EC Comics to me and, and in a great way. Oh, I mean, now you say that, right? Like the the comeuppance that our villain gets and yeah. uh, the over-the-top violence. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but you're you're absolutely right. And I gather that he did extensive storyboards for the film, and so there's more of that comic book influence coming in there. You know, the way everything's kind of constructed, you mentioned like the deep focus and having somebody in the extreme foreground and background and all that. And yeah, I can see that in Orson Welles, but I also see that in a ton of comic books. Because yes. it just, it felt very comic book to me and again in a great way there's the one shot where our villain thinks he killed somebody buries her walks away yes and then her hand still comes up and it's like man that's straight out that's that's an ec okay. zombie comic right there that that's exactly what that is i know it wasn't a zombie but the structure and the way it was put together it felt very much like that you're totally right yeah i hadn't even thought of that but you know you could freeze that and there's your ec panel yep yeah absolutely yeah and, and for listeners who don't know, the Doom Patrol, it's, it's a TV show now, but it's had a long history in the DC comics. You see a lot of analogs between it and the X-Men, and that can become a whole different conversation about what came first and who influenced what. But uh, yeah, it's been around for a long time. Well, you had Arnold Drake writing the X-Men too, so mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> it just makes it even more tangled, right? Yeah, it's it's a mess, and there's there's 
plenty of articles about it over at comicbookresources.com and a few other places. You can read all about it. So when you take what you, you just said there, right, with all the comic book panels we have there. So we, we see that strand of the DNA. And then we've got Bradley Metzger doing the editing. We get to things like the Licorice Quartet and all the sort of ambitious softcore that he directed in the 70s. But the, the sharpness of the editing is so striking there, too, like the aforementioned cut scene mm-hmm. uh, moment. Uh, so what a neat movie that's combining these wildly disparate, at least on the surface, forms and genres and approaches. And we were seeing it in this film really before we start seeing the the really major work of those artists just a few years down the road. Yeah. Or months down the road almost. And then throw it all off by telling everybody that the director was the voice of Pops Racer from Speed Racer. So I I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) How does that fit? I guess that goes back to what I said before, right? The 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 Venn circles, you know, include but are not limited to, to right? I mean, we just keep it's going to look like a, an explosion of a bubble factory by the time you start unpacking all of the different strands that arrive at this strange nexus here. It's a weird one, but I mean, in such a great way. It's got the gore stuff. It's got the you know, the, like you said, the drive-in stuff, the maybe the pre-exploitation stuff, but then you've got all the creature feature, the mad scientist elements as well. When they come across the big solar cell, solar battery thing up on the beach, <laughs> what? Where did that come from? <laughs> like, I don't understand, but hey, there it is, and it works. And yeah, I know it looks like a big cardboard box with construction paper on it. I don't care. It's cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it helps that the characters are going, "What the hell?" <laughs> you know, yeah. they're, they're just, they're just. This- baffled by its presence and yeah. the and the hand wave that comes with that right so he says oh well let me explain and then well i've been working with a colleague for a while and fade out so we never actually get the actual explanation as to why he has this gigantic solar battery <laughs> but it works again though in, in that it works on the meta level it works on that kind of economy of storytelling we don't really really do we need to know where it came from i mean no it'd be nice but we don't need it. We can move on from there. He's got power. That's all we need to know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> Which I think is something that so many uh, monster movies that they, they could have taken on board, right? How many films give elaborate explanations as to where a thing came from? It's like, really? Well, what, whatever, right? We, we don't really need to know. I mean, we get the explanation for the flesh eaters, but we do need that at the point that it shows up because that explains and justifies why our villain is doing what he's doing. But it's an approach that I really appreciated in something more recent, like say Tremors, right? Which actually has fun with the fact that there's absolutely no explanation as to where these things came from. But you know what? You came to see a monster movie. So here's the monsters. You know, I mean, you could really extrapolate from there. It's like, well, how Lovecraftian is it that we don't really know? And, you know, you can really go into these, get stuck in that, but you don't need to. It's a monster movie. The monsters are here. Deal with it. And speaking of Lovecraft. Uh Uh-huh. Aren't those creature designs the most Lovecraftian monsters you could see in the 1960s and possibly before? We're doing it again, man. That's exactly (laughs) (laughs) these monsters. What these things end up looking like at the end. I am surprised that I had never seen them before. I had never seen any stills, no, uh, nothing on posters, no poster art, no lobby cards. I've never looked at a press kit from this film. If one even exists, I had no idea that I was in store for that. I really thought it was going to be some sort of thing in the water and that's it. But when these things start getting bigger and bigger and coming after, (laughs) whoa, I, 
I was pleasantly surprised. And it's hard to do that to me these days. And that was exactly my reaction, too. And it, it pleases me so much that you had the same experience I had. And I saw this film for the first time almost 30 years ago. It would have been early 90s. And uh, again, thanks to the good folks at Sinister Cinema, that's how I first uh, got to see this. And I had no idea any of this was coming. And like you said, that yeah, there's, you hardly see any of them out there. So it pleases me that there's still people who can hit this film. Well, not anyone who's listened to this show. I was but, we just spoiled uh, it for everybody, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but otherwise, who can just hit it? It's like, what, what, what? And get that delight of these Easter egg monsters. I was so surprised. I mean, I, having grown up reading like the Crestwood House books and go, even going through like the, the Dennis Gifford book and all these other Monsters of the Movies books and things like that, I don't think I've ever seen this thing in anything before. And I was so happy for that last night. And and I think I freaked out my cat. I think I freaked out Smoke when it showed up and we saw it. I was like, what? And he kind of jumped like, what? <laughs> it's just like, because it just, I loved it, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, I, I never get tired of, I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen this film and I never get tired of it. And, you know, and whenever Peter Bartel is telling us that there's a, don't forget there's a creature a hundred times the size is forming as we speak. And we go, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know we really kind of played up the gore and all that at the very beginning of this. And it is there. Uh, the, there yeah. are people getting shot. The flesh heaters are eating flesh uh at one point our villain makes somebody consume one of these things which is just horrible to think about it's like dude you are mm, no um so and we see the after effects of that but really the movie's got so much more going for it than that it's like these moments they work for the story it's not like blood feast it's not an hg lewis thing it just really works. You feel something there, right? I mean, that scene first, we're kind of anticipating Alien by 16 years in that scene. But the sadism of it, right? The, oh, I, I mean, it's, it's the brutal elimination of the comic relief. When, when does that happen? And then the fact that, that uh, the villain is recording the victim screams uh, while this really convincingly awful thing is happening to him. And then putting him out on the raft so you, uh, with a tape recorder playing the scream so he can fool everyone else into thinking this guy took off and is being eaten at that moment. So we kind of experience his death twice. It's an awful moment. We're getting back into the, the meta commentary again, but you know it really solidifies the villain as villain, which I think comes back to one of the other points you made, how that's why it's his fault that so many people die. In fact, he's the, the murderer of two of them. Mm-hmm. And what you, you said about the Romero paradigm, I think, is absolutely correct, right? You, you'd probably be okay if not for the problem within. Right. Uh, I mean, all these people have to do is stay out of the water. Yeah. But that's not going to be uh, an option because of who they're, they're stuck with on the land. And I think the way that the film establishes its threats, I mean, the I think one of the other gore effects that really stands out is when our hero gets a flesh eater on his leg. And uh, we're seeing it cut away in oh, the boy. flesh. And it's unpleasant. But the lead up to that, I think, is one of the most successful, sustained scenes of suspense in the movie. When Laura uh, is stuck on the edge of the rocks, and now she realizes that, oh, they're crap, there's flesh eaters uh, here. This is where the characters have only just discovered the problem. And she's paralyzed and frightened and uh, has to be rescued. And the film has, has shown us, okay, don't go in the water. Something bad will happen to you. 
And just as we would then uh, get in Jaws and just as we had uh, in, in Creature from the Black Lagoon, you just have to let the audience know, okay, water bad. Right? And then you don't have to keep showing the sparkly stuff. We just know the water is a problem. We just immediately fear it. You know, don't touch the water. And so a apparently simple process of jumping over some rocks suddenly becomes fraught with peril. And it's done so e economically. Like you said, there's nothing wasted. And certainly every dollar is also on screen, but the economy of the threat. You just uh, tell the audience that sparkly water is a bad thing. You just sunshine on water, any kind of water, just now it's a problem. Now it becomes a threat. and We don't even have to be shown anything. We just know that, yeah, stay out of the water. Pretty much. And lest we forget that this movie was kind of proto-exploitation as well. When he gets that stuff on his leg and they have to cut it away and the other guy's asking for, you know, give us a bandage. We need to wrap this up. The woman takes her top off and tears it up to give him some bandages. And then as soon as that scene's over... The other guy takes his shirt off to put it on her. Well, you could have just taken his shirt, you know, but of course we want to yeah. see the woman in the bra, you know, whatever. But and, <laughs> so don't forget, you know, it's a drive-in movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no that, that's definitely true. And we get and that gets bounced around a few times, too. Right. Because mm -hmm. then subsequently she's in a bathing suit because of what uh, what just happened. And we have Laura saying we're not casting a Bridget Bardot movie today. Uh, <laughs> right. These are these elements of sexual competition, right? When Laura changes into a low-cut top and says, I thought I should change it to something ellipsis more practical, to, to which you know, Grant Murdoch just kind of sort of looks at her and sounding really, really tired and says, well, that's nice, and, and uh, moves on. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the film is it was certainly having its cake, uh, eating it too, uh, with regards to the, the fairly blatant exploitation elements. Yeah, but it's not enough to put you off. I mean, it's not enough to say, okay, that's what this movie's about. The movie is about... Well, all of these elements coming together in this, this really wonderful mix. This is, and I know I say this a lot on the show, especially more and more recently, as I start discovering some of these movies that I've never seen before. This is becoming one of my favorite discoveries that I've had through Monster Kid Radio. I'm so glad to hear that. I want to study this film. I want to watch it again. I'm going to check out the extras on the Dark Sky disc. I want to know even more about it. And uh, I, I just am so thankful that you brought it up and was like, fine, let's just do it. And man, I'm so, <laughs> I'm so enamored by it. I can't tell you how happy that it makes me feel. I mean, this is a movie that I had the same kind of what the hell experience. I didn't know what I was in for. And within a very short period of time, I think it's safe to say it's in my top 10 all-time favorite films. Oh, wow. And so I feel like I'm spreading the gospel. Uh, <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if I can get other people to share even a fraction of, of that pleasure. So that makes me so happy to hear, Derek. I mean, given how many films I have wound up revisiting, thanks to your discussions, this makes me feel maybe I'm giving something back. So <laughs> it's great to hear. <laughs> and I'm sure that there's plenty more we could say about the movie. We've been chatting for a little over an hour now, so I want to start winding down. But there's so much more about this movie to uh, enjoy that I'm going to go back. Like I said, I'm going to rewatch it and rewatch it. Is there anything that you think we've missed that we need to make sure we had at least this time around that we're talking about it? I think we pretty much covered it. Yeah, I think we, we did a lot of bouncing around. Somehow we managed to spoil the entire film without ever giving a synopsis. Yeah, that's true, huh? <laughs> And big spoilers this time, especially regarding what happens at the end. Just the way it's paced, the editing, the writing, the performances are all pretty solid. I love this movie, man. That's all yeah. I can really I mean, say. I love it, this movie, man. <laughs> no, that's that's what it comes down to for me. It, it's a deep and abiding love that will never fade. I'm so. I mean, on the one hand, I'm beating myself up for having not watched it sooner, but now I'm I'm so glad that I got to watch it without having any 
real preconceived notions about it. Maybe it worked out for the best. And, you know, I just double checked. It is still available on DVD. Dark Sky still has it available for you. It's $15. Well worth it. Well worth it. That's a steal. Yeah. I was starting to get worried there for a second. It's like, oh no, is this one out of print? No, it's still out there. So pick it up. Make it out of print by buying it. Buy it all up. (laughs) It's so good. David, this has been awesome. This has been so much fun. And I was a little worried that I hadn't had all my coffee before we started recording. But as soon as we started talking about flesh haters, I was ready to go. I was energized, ready to do this. (laughs) It's always a pleasure for me. And I've I've just been so excited. We get to talk about the flesh haters. So uh, I've had a blast. Let's not wait a year before we have you back on. David, I can't wait for the Dr. Doom book and anything else you've got coming up. Also, I want to thank you. The Recently, I've been posting on Facebook that I want to read some good fantasy and sword and sorcery, and you've given me a whole list of stuff to check out. So thank you for that as well. And just thanks for all of your support of Monster Kid Radio over the years. My thanks go to you. This is a treasure. I know other people have, have said the same thing, and it's it's, a, it's become an important part of uh, of, of my life, sort of knowing that, that wonderful show. is that, like Listening to Monster Kid Radio is like picking up a new issue of Famous Monsters back in the 70s when I was a kid. So, thank you, sir. Okay, seriously, how cool was that? I am in love with this movie, and I talk about this in the description of this episode. If you go to monsterkidradio.net and read the description or whatever podcast directory you took this from, you'll see my comment about how excited I am every time I get to discover a brand new movie through the course of producing Monster Kid Radio. And I was I was so thrilled. I am not kidding. I really was watching that. And as soon as that monster turned up and I freaked out, my cat smoke freaked out too, because it was such a physical reaction. It was such a shock to the system to see that happen. And to be blunt, I, I'm in love with this film. I probably would put this on my top 10 list right now. I know it's always changing and we always talk about that, but you know, the flesh eaters, it's there. I love it. I also really love the cover for the issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland that talks about this movie. I know I didn't play it before because I've been waiting until now to play it. Here's Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. He'll mention that cover and a few other things as well. Take it away, Kenny. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. movie, The Flesh Eaters, was featured in FM 29 from July of 1964. A horrific image was plastered on the cover, and a six-page, seven-photo article was inside. It began with this. Splash! Girl overboard! It's all in fun, but only for the first few seconds. There's a second splash as a girl's young boyfriend playfully follows her into the water, diving from their small sailboat. But a few moments later, the boy fails to surface. Instead, a violent burst of bubbles gushes up through the water, followed by a pool of thick, dark liquid. Blood. The girl screams. Then she too disappears beneath the surface. The credits appear on the screen. Vulcan Productions presents The Flesh Eaters. Released by CDA, produced by Jack Curtis and Arnold Drake. Directed by Jack Curtis from an original script by Arnold Drake. Starring Martin Koslick and Rita Morley, and introducing the amazing new process, Animotion. A detailed synopsis followed. Here is how they describe the first look at the title Monsters. Grant is furious with Laura because it looks like, thanks to Bartell's plant, she drunkenly let the seaplane loose the night before. 
It is only when her life is in danger that he overcomes his anger and he goes to her rescue. Her rescue from what? From the flesh eaters. Suddenly, as she lies atop a rock, the waters at its base churns and are filled with a ferocious new life form. Several of the fiercely hungry creatures start to attack Grant's leg and Bartell is forced to gouge them off with a hunting knife. The professor explains, We are surrounded by some strange mutation from the sea. It will destroy anything that comes between it and its food. The synopsis stops short of the climax and ends with this paragraph. Now things really begin to happen. Laura discovers Bartell's secret and is silenced by him with a hunting knife. He buries her in a shallow grave from which her trembling hand emerges after he has left the scene. In the tent, unseen except by us, a terrifying change occurs in the flesh eaters. They grow into a cancerous, slimy shape that slops from the jar, wrapping oozing tentacles around a parrot cage and consuming the squawking bird. This is only the beginning. A thing, a strange and natural thing that exists midway between life and death. But if you can stand to see human flesh stripped off a body before your very eyes, you must see the flesh eaters. With that lurid description of the film, I doubt many normal FM readers would have been allowed to see it. Quite gruesome for 1964. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. A typical American family at dinner. Mom and dad, their beautiful daughter-in-law, and their only son, Joe. A homicidal maniac. Harry! What are you doing? How's your dad? It's okay. There you go. Thanks a lot. What you hunting this time? I'm gonna shoot some pigs. Targets. A movie about a war inside a man's head. Hey, what are you doing? Peter Bogdanovich, the director of The Last Picture Show, takes you for a roller coaster ride through the canyons of a disturbed mind in Targets. Yeah, the light! The light! Stay in there, get down! Oh, there's somebody shooting out here! Open the window! What turns an all-American boy into an all-American killer?
Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you guys and gals for sticking around and listening to the show, downloading the show, leaving honest podcast reviews over in the iTunes store or wherever else you download your podcast, letting people know about it through various social media outlets. If you're on Facebook, please consider sharing the post. If you're on Twitter, please consider retweeting the post and just letting everybody know about what we're doing here at Monster Kid Radio. You can find out more about Monster Kid Radio at monsterkidradio.net. Our contact information is over there. Our link to our Patreon page is over there. Links to our Twitter, our Facebook page, our Facebook group are over there. We also have the Monster Kid Radio Book Club. And I was double-checking that. It has not been updated to include David Annandale's books. But that's okay, because I've left them in the show notes for this episode. If you click on those Amazon affiliate links, you can get your hands on David's books while also supporting Monster Kid Radio through the cut of the Amazon sale that we get. Which isn't a lot, but every little bit helps. Also on our website, we traditionally list what's coming up next week. I don't know what's coming up next week. I've got two recordings in the can, and uh, I have another one scheduled for tomorrow afternoon. So I'm not really sure what's going to make the cut, but... I'll make sure I update everybody on Facebook probably first and then pay attention to the website at monsterkidradio.net because I'll update there as well as soon as I know what's coming up. But there will be something coming next week, so stay tuned, stay subscribed. Now, I mentioned at the top of the show that I have a couple of announcements I'd like to make, and, well, here we go. Announcements. It's really all about the Monster Kid Movie Club. If you go over to monsterkidmovie.club, you'll see that we have a Twitch stream. We have a Twitch channel where we show monster movies at least twice a week now. So the big show is on Saturday. It starts at 11 a.m. Pacific with a pre-show, which is usually a documentary about something horror or monster-related. And then around noon, we start the actual movie presentations with a live chat. This is all Pacific time, and we always show at least five, six, seven hours of monster movies, TV shows, shorts, commercials, trailers, whatever else I can get my hands on. It's a lot of fun for me to program this for you guys and gals. I hope you guys and gals enjoy it as much as I enjoy putting it together. This weekend, starting at 11 a.m., like I said, Pacific time, we've got the pre-show, and then I can tell you right now, we're going to be doing some pretty cool stuff. We're going to be showing the movies The Devil's Hand and Monsters from Green Hell. We're also going to be showing the final three chapters of the Bela Lugosi serial The Phantom Creeps. We're going to have at least one more movie in there. Still not 100% sure what it is, but we will have at least one more movie in there. Now, if you're a Facebook user, I always create a Facebook event for these screening, streaming, screaming parties. And I try to get it done no later than the Friday before. If you are a user of Facebook, please consider joining the Monster Kid Radio group or liking the Monster Kid Radio page because I'll post a link there. Now, I said I do this twice a week. On Tuesday, we shift gears a little bit. It's at the same website, monsterkidmovie.club, but on Tuesday, it's the Monster Kid Astronomy Club, where we show science fiction movies. We show at least two classic science fiction films, and then maybe a short gets thrown in there as well. I try real hard to do a half-hour pre-show as well, if I can get my hands on something that fits the theme, which is typically science fiction. This happens on Tuesday. The pre-show starts at 3.30 p.m. The movies start around 4 p.m. Again, this is Pacific time. I love putting these movies together, but what I love most is the live chat that happens through the entire runtime. I have so much fun doing this. I have so much fun chatting with you guys and gals. I'd love for you to join us. Also, if you join us on Saturday, there's a real good chance you'll have an opportunity to win a stuffed with character, stuffed character from stuffed with characters, Tracy Morris. 
I'll make sure there's a link to the Stuffed with Character Facebook page in the show notes so you can go check out what they look like. And I can tell you, I've got a couple here, and I love them. The other announcement that I have to make is that I've mentioned this a few times in the stream and a couple of times here on the show. We are going to be open to advertisers and sponsors starting next month. I know I've been talking about it for a while, but it's taking me a little while to put a price sheet together. This will be made available through our website. And if anybody is interested in advertising, they can always contact me directly at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. I won't read that email on the show, but I can share with you advertising and sponsorship rates at that time. Patreon's not going anywhere. Patreon helps support the upkeep of the show and everything other technical stuff that's happening and the logistical stuff that's happening with the podcast. Advertising and sponsorship will actually help compensate for my time and energy put into maintaining the podcast and the logistics supporting the show and that sort of thing. Thanks once again to the band Bad Water for letting us play their music here on the show. Their new EP, The Martians EP, came out a couple of months ago in July. You can check them out at badwaterband.bandcamp.com you can pick up this four song EP name your price really pay whatever you want for the digital album however you do it though make sure you drop them a line and let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio until next week remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC all original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution non-commercial, no derivatives 3.0 unported license the song Martians is copyright Badwater 2020. My name's Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week when we talk about something. Ciao. Mm-hmm.